Amen. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate Tim, uh, our pastor, for how he invests in us, uh, how he invests in me, and uh, teaches me things. Uh, for example, pericope. <laughs> if you would have asked me, if Tim would have asked me, what is a pericope like last week? I 100% would have said it's one of those lacy umbrellas that ladies in the 1600s used to, <laughs> to carry around. Absolutely for sure would have said that. What's funnier is, uh, you know, he told me about that <clears throat> pericope and, you know, he wrote it out and I was like, that's pericope for sure. And I actually like responded on one of his social media posts with a little joke about pericope because I had no idea that it was actually pericope. Anyway, joke on me. So... All to say, uh, as, as Tim mentioned, words mean things, and that's significant because as we do look into the word, uh, as we champion the word, uh, it's not just words that we're reading, words that we're looking at, it is the actual word of God. Uh, and that is <clears throat> definitely our first priority here as a church. Uh, it is for Tim in his role as main communicator to us from the word of God. Uh, I get the benefit of seeing him uh, every day of the week and the time that he puts in to uh, make sure that the words that he is speaking uh, are correct and from God. And what a, a wonderful privilege that is and a blessing to us uh, as church family members to learn uh, directly from the word of God and know that, uh, you know, there's max effort being given to make, to make sure it's correct. Uh, so that's <clears throat> great. As we look into Luke 21, uh, we know that you know, this is from God and uh, his words and correct words, not fancy, lacy umbrellas. Anyway, uh, this morning as we begin, we're going to do something, well, I'm going to do something a little bit different than what I would normally do. Uh, and that is, uh, give a little background. Last time I spoke uh, to you in this context, up front here in the, the main sanctuary, uh, I had about 12 hours notice uh, that I was up. So it felt a bit scrambly, to say the least. Uh, this time, with uh, the calendar and working it through the sermon schedule and the texts and whatnot, I've had about three months notice. And this particular passage that we're looking at, as you see, Luke 21, 1 through 4, it's only four verses. So I've had three months for four verses. And let me tell you, buckle up, kids. You know, <laughs> We're getting at it today. There's no stone left unturned uh, this, this morning. Uh, but within that, because it's only four verses, to try to get as broad a context and as many different angles to get us the, the, the clearest picture of what's being said here, we're going to be looking at several other passages as well. So if you're prone to paper cuts, just jot the things down, jot the, the verses down. Uh, you're more than welcome to flip back and forth. I'd love to have you read along uh, with me as well. But one way or another, your homework today is to go back and look at these other passages as well in context and in concert with Luke 21, 1 through 4, and see how the whole picture comes clear of, of what we're trying to communicate this morning. There's one main theme that I want you to walk away with this morning, and it too is fairly simple. And it's that Jesus changes everything. And what a wonderful truth that is. Jesus changes everything. He's most interested in making us different, making us more and more to his image. Jesus will never, as we interact and intersect and, and draw our lives more in concert with him, he will never leave us the same. And that can seem scary, a little bit unsettling maybe, uh, but know and trust that God is good. And so we can know that Jesus changes everything and we don't need to fear that. Jesus changes everything. He changes my identity. I go from being away from him, uh, <clears throat> a stranger to him, to being a new creation in him when I uh, meet him. He changes how I look at and perceive the world around me. And most specific to today, Jesus changes how I handle and how I relate to, how I view all that he has blessed me with, my resources, my possessions, my wealth. Jesus changes everything. May we be brave enough this morning to let that truth move inside of us and that it will bump up to what could be, and well, not could be, I think it is, uh, the number one idol in all of Western civilization, 
the stuff that we have. Luke chapter 21, 1 through 4, it says this. He, Jesus, Jesus is speaking here in the temple. It says, He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. God, as we look into your word, uh, God, may you speak clearly to us. We want to hear only your word. I want to speak only your words. May you move in all of our hearts together in concert, in unison, to have your way in us. Me as I speak, church body as they hear, and together as we give glory to you. May your Holy Spirit move mightily here in the sanctuary today. In your name we pray. Amen. So the scene is this. Jesus is in the temple physically, and he's been there all week. What's been going on is just previously, just a couple chapters earlier, Luke chapter 19, we see, or 18, we see the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple, and he's there teaching and interacting. The very first thing he does in Luke chapter 19 is a very physical demonstration of what he is about, and that is getting people's hearts back to him, back to the true original purpose. And he drives out the merchants and, and flips over the tables in the temple and cleansing the temple. He's still in the temple interacting and talking with people, and now something a little more subtle takes place. Jesus is off to the side teaching, and it says he looks up and he notices this. And this is what we, we know first and foremost, is that absolutely in every situation, Jesus is most interested in our hearts, most interested in the internal of what is going on. And so even though his time in the temple started with a very physical outward demonstration, he is just and even more interested in the inward condition of our hearts. And so it says, he looked up and he saw the rich dropping their offering into the temple treasury. Now, again, as I mentioned, Jesus was sort of off to the side, looked up and noticed this. This isn't the image here where Jesus is lurking in the shadows behind a pillar, sort of like peeking and spying on people to see, hey, what are you giving? What are you, what are you putting into the offering pot? What's, what's happening here? He's you know, got his tab, you know, his, his, his tabulation sheet and, and, and marking down things. It's completely the opposite. The scene here in the temple is actually, in many ways, a design spectacle. There were some wanting to be observed, wanting to be seen, putting money in the gifts and offering collection places. What it looked like was in the temple, there were 13 trumpeted offering coffers. And at its base was, was probably a box or some larger container. But up from the base came 13 in 13 different uh, instances, like a trumpeted opening. So it's like wider at the top and narrower at the bottom. And I get this picture of uh, if you've ever taken your kids somewhere to like an arcade or back when they used to have malls. Do you remember those giant yellow tubs that, you know, you'd put a coin in the channel and it would roll around and make a noise and it got towards the center. It was like making, going even faster and making even more noise. I, I picture something sim similar. So here we have these 13 trumpeted vessels that people were putting their offerings and gifts into. And again, it was a design spectacle that people were glad to be seen there and to make these noises with what they gave. The bigger coins of different density would make a different sound than smaller coins. And, and so it was almost like, I wonder, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if you know, they're like whipping them in there to you know, see... If they, could, if they could make it louder and louder. If we go back to, to Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is really uh, speaking to hearts and the, the purity of hearts, he actually references this when he says, in giving to the poor, don't sound a trumpet in your giving. This is literally what he's talking about. He's, he's not saying, you know, don't get your bugle and stand up. Probably saying that, but he's referencing this, this here in the temple, this design spectacle of sounding the trumpet, of throwing your coins in to say, hey, look at me. Look at the good that I'm doing, everyone, uh, and that physical sound calling attention to it. 
So again, it's certainly not Jesus lurking in the shadows. Um, it is, he looked up and saw what was going on and all in the vicinity would hear what was taking place. He also saw in verse two, he also saw a widow dropping in two tiny coins. And by tiny, it's tiny in size and valuation both. It's estimated in modern equivalents that each coin would have been worth about an eighth of a cent. And so she here is putting in about a quarter cent, um, but the significance was it is all she had to live on, it says. It was everything. It was all of her material possessions. And it is here that Jesus draws attention. Here he makes his teaching point. Verse three and four says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. First question I have is, did she really just drop all she had into the offering and walk away? How is that, how is that possible? How could she have done that? I think the answer can be found from where the offerings were given. Rather than how did she do it, from where were they given? Might seem weird to phrase it this way, but the rich, the poor, this widow, you and I, every single human, we have a relationship with our resources. And by resources, I certainly mean our monetary wealth, the things that we can physically touch and say, here's cash money or coins or whatever. But our resources are also our time our giftedness, how God has spiritually gifted you and, and put you together. All of these come together to create 100% of our resources. Can I go back to the main truth this morning or the main focus point, and that is the gospel transforms everything. To understand from where the offerings were given, again, we first must ponder and think a little bit of how the gospel changes everything. So spend some time reading through Matthew chapter 6. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount challenging our heart condition. Giving example and telling us not to worry for God is the one who is our provider, our caretaker. Using the examples of birds of the air of how they don't store away in barns, the lilies of the field, they don't worry about what they're going to wear. The Heavenly Father, God, care of them and will certainly take care of us. So as I view my resources, <clears throat> is there a need for transforming in what I think I have and what I think that represents and symbolizes and what God is saying by trust in me? For when I am focused only on my abundance, I'm easily held captive. But when I am aware of my poverty, it is then that I'm free. I want to look at this relationship with our resources this morning in the context of this widow who is able to freely give all, to hold it with an open hand and say, here it is. I give it to you, God, because of who you are. We tend to view our resources in three ways. I relate to my resources for, first, my satisfaction, my significance, certainly for my security. There is something different about this widow where she was able to say, I'm giving it all away. I like to, in, in order to understand present contexts, to go backwards and look at the original foundation to, to speak to what is happening, happening currently, and here is no difference. So again, the present context is still the past as we, as we look at Luke, but to go back even further to the original foundation of what was taking place here, of giving offerings to the Lord and worshiping God in this manner, where did it come from? This wasn't something that just started in the New Testament temple or uh, even you know, in the, the time of when Jesus was physically on the earth. That wasn't something new to that period. It was something that we can go back all the way to the book of Deuteronomy and find the original foundation. And so that's what I want to look at a little bit this morning as well. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 29. Verses 22 through 20, 23 <clears throat> says this, as the instructions are giving of what giving offerings to the Lord in worship looks like, how to do it. Verse 22, each year you are to set aside a tenth of all your produce grown in your fields. You are to eat a tenth of your grain, new wine, and fresh oil, 
and the firstborn of your herd and flock in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell so that you will always learn to fear the Lord your God. We see here is tithing, giving gifts and offerings to the Lord is a regular response. It's something that happens all the time. It says every year do this. It's an agricultural society and so everyone was a farmer and growing things and so to really set our hearts or to set their hearts on giving thanks to God and worshiping God, their provider. He's saying, take a tenth of all that you produce, the grain of the fields, the olive oil from the, the uh, olive orchards, and, and give it back to the Lord every year to do this. And so by giving tithing regularly to God, we know that prosperity, and it sets the heart towards the fact that prosperity did not depend upon the cleverness of my own human hands. So even then, there were developments every year in farming techniques. Maybe a new tool was developed or a, a super, you know, shovel or spade or new irrigation techniques that increased what were they, they were able to produce. And the temptation would surely be, look what I have done. Look at the cleverness of my own hands and yay me, this is good. But to give back to the Lord is to, again, set your heart towards and put it in the position of saying, God, everything I have, increase, decrease, stays the same. All of it is from you, and I worship you with it. Certainly then, and it's no different now, I think it's the condition of our just humanness, is that as self-aggrandizing deception increases, I view my resources as mine as mine to nurture, mine to promote, and mine to protect. These are things that I have done. And so it brings us to this transformational thought. Transformational thought number one is that when I think I own all I possess, I am focused on my own satisfaction. Meaning, I relate to my resources, my monetary wealth, my time, my giftedness, only through the lens of does it make me feel good? Does it bring me what I perceive as joy? And if it does, if it brings me joy, if it brings me a perceived good, well, yeah, then I could maybe be talked into it. And so therefore, yeah, if it doesn't, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Back in our passage in Deuteronomy, we see this form of worship in 24 through 26, that tithing is a flexible form of worship. It says, but if the distance of bringing your offering to the temple is too great for you to carry it, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, and since the Lord your God has blessed you, then exchange it for silver. Take the silver in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the silver on anything you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. You are to feast there in the presence of your God and rejoice with your family." I think when it comes to giving and giving gifts to God or tithing, there's a wrong stereotype that's developed that somehow it's an emotionless formulaic that, oh, this is the God tax and he just wants me to, you know, earmark it to him and give it to him and uh, done. No, it is a joyful experience. It is a joyful expression uh, of worship to the Lord. And we see how, you know, it's not, it combats, it totally comes against this thought that I view everything that I have in my resources only through my own satisfaction uh, because of the flexibility within it. You know, some may say, oh, it's impossible. I can't imagine what it would be like to try to pile up 10% of what I have grown and what I have established when the, the temple is 38 miles away. Woo, Bessie the oxen might not make it, and my rickety old cart that I have isn't going to make it. And so God is saying, we exchange it. Exchange what you have for silver, and then go to the temple. When you're at the temple, buy whatever you want. Burgers, brats, wine, beer. And before you get too crazy there, before you get too excited, again, read the whole verse in the context of what it's saying here. And this feast that you will have to worship the Lord is in the presence of the Lord. So this isn't license or liberty here to say that, well, Kurt said that I could, you know, make an offering to the Lord in the parking lot at Arrowhead all oh, about September. 
And that would be a wonderful, joyous experience to God that I'm going to take all my resources and my money and literally get burgers and brats and beer and wine and it'll be a great thing. No. The context is, yeah, these things might take place, but it's in the presence of the Lord. So what would the focus be? Total worship and, uh, you know, pointing our hearts and, and minds towards him and, and thanking him and blessing him for all that he has given us. And then rejoicing there with your family. Is there anything better than a big meal, whether it's a holiday or just a time where you're getting together with your closest family members or, or people that you are just tight with? And there's that moment where you all sit down to dinner, everyone's at the table, and there's almost a pause of like, ah. It's at that moment, oh man, there is, there is, it is such a worshipful moment to then in that moment to look around, to be conscious, to really Take inventory of everything that is there before you and say, thank you, God. All of this is from you. I've got family, friends around me, people that I am connected to, relationships that we are in. There's this feast on the table that is wonderful, and all of it, God, is your blessings, and I give you praise in that. That is what this looks like here. So giving our thanks and our praises to God is not for our satisfaction, but we do take satisfaction in the fact that we are praising and glorifying God, our provider uh, of all things. God, I turned the page on my notes. God is most interested in the attitude of our giving rather than the act itself. Again, although the location remained the same, the place where his name rested, which was the temple, the flexibility in form removes the excuse that most likely we would use uh, when our hearts wrestle with this. And so as the gospel begins to transform everything, even this, when the gospel begins to intersect and interact with this thought that when I think I own all I possess, then I'm thinking only of my own satisfaction, I discover that when my satisfaction is rooted in Christ, I am fulfilled. John 10.10 tells me that Christ came to give us life and give it to the full. God isn't a wet blanket. God isn't a a killjoy saying, no, you have to not enjoy anything. And, you know, you need to to walk around with sand in your armpits to really, you know, keep you in a humble, humble spirit. No. He's saying everything you have is from him, and we can take joy in that and be satisfied in that knowing and pointing our hearts towards him, our provider of those things. Tithing is a satisfying exercise. It's a reason for joy in giving to God is our recognition of God for who he is, and as we recognize him, our connection with him grows. Again, that symbolized well in that joyful meal, rejoicing with the whole family in the presence of God brings us to the transformational thought number two, and that is, when I think I own all I possess, I'm focused only on my own significance. And so again, through the the lens that I'm looking through is, I view everything I have, all of my resources as, okay, I will interact with my resources and use my resources so long as it moves me one step ahead. As long as it gives maximum benefit and positioning to me, then I will use my resources for those. Deuteronomy 14, back in that passage, verse 28 and 29, gives us a different instruction that begins to transform our thinking. It says, at the end of every three years, bring bring a tenth of all your produce for that year and store it within your city gates. Then the Levite, who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, And the widow within your city gates may come, eat, and be satisfied. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. What is it saying? It's saying that our giving, our worshiping God with our resources and giving back to him has maximum kingdom benefit. Bring your offerings, bring and give to him and store them up so that people who are without may come and eat and be satisfied. You're taking care of them. And, and what does that do? Is that simply they come and eat and have a meal and they're gone? No, it's something much more significant and something much more eternal than that. 
fast forward to the New Testament and we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 of what this looks like in a New Testament church, an early church, when they put this into practice and it's walked out. It says that the giving that this church was doing had such an impact in the community around them that people were giving praise and thanksgiving to God, that people saw the church's generosity and responded by giving praise to God. Giving to God for his impact, for his significance, has an eternal impact on the world around us, that we can reach into the world with what God has given us and have an impact for God in the world. Honoring God with all I possess magnifies the significance of God, and this expands his kingdom. May I use my resources for things that truly matter. When I possess, or when all I possess, is pointed toward my own significance of me, myself, and I, I am a prisoner. Also in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, it says this. It says, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's a normal and natural question then to begin to formulate in our minds and to think about this thought that, is money evil? Is having money immoral? How much, how much should I, if I should have any at all, how much should I have? Should I have nothing? Should I have zero? Some would argue yes and construct a religious thought pattern around this, that that holiness comes from extreme piety. You can look back into church history and see uh, an example of this. And, and yes, poverty is a spiritual gift. There is a spiritual gift of poverty. And St. Anthony and St. Francis of Assisi took this vow and lived this out in its purest sense. However, without a spiritual gift, when it's just a mindset or a thought or a deception that, you know, the less I have, the more holy I am, there can be an extremist view that develops as it interacts with our humanity. That we think that money itself is evil and having it corrupts. And and what this looks like when it's in our hearts is that we start to look down our nose at people. And what it is, it's really still a love of money, but because we don't have as much of what we think we want or deserve or desire and, you know, I've only got 20 bucks when I want 2,000 bucks, I begin to look around and, and use my lack as a cloak of, of fake holiness and say, oh, man, when I see that fancier car drive by than the one I'm driving, I can think to myself in my heart, well, they're probably a sinner. Or that person who lives in a fancier house, that a bigger house, and we know they go to church somewhere, we think, their relationship with the Lord is probably eh, a little iffy. That's wrong thinking. <clears throat> we don't know the, the, the condition of the heart. So we can't say that, that less money or <clears throat> uh, giving it all away or extreme piety is a path to pure and certain holiness. 
Someone argue, some would argue no, that absolutely money is, is not evil and the pendulum can swing wildly the opposite direction. And this is where a victory theology has become established and unfortunately all too common and we don't have to look far in Christian circles to see that. And that is that, the pros, that prosperity is my reward for my obvious righteousness. That believing that my relationship with God is legitimized based on my material possessions. My money is actually proof that God is impressed with me and my way is correct. How could we justify that in other portions of the world? I've had the privilege and the blessing to travel to a few different countries. I've been to, to China and former Yugoslavia and the, in, in Eastern Europe. And in both cases, interacted with Christians who were in desperate poverty according to our North American standards. And their faith, their relationship with the Lord was something that challenged me and spurred me to further growth and encouraged me the depth of their relationship with the Lord, even in a communist country such as as China. If I were to say that, no, the surest sign of you being right with God is material wealth, that just doesn't make sense. Worldwide, It cannot be a universal truth. So both extremes are unhealthy and a dangerous indicator of spiritual health. So is money itself evil? Is intentionally not having money morally right? Is willful poverty more righteous in the eyes of God? Is, is having money a badge of righteousness? It's no in all cases. It is the love of money that's described here. And what is it? The, the, the desire to be rich. Well, how do we know when that gets, gets out of whack? It can best be defined by this, that it is seeking to satisfy the needs of life through our possessions. That is what brings idolatry. Seeking to satisfy the needs of life through our possessions. That, okay, I have this need in my life, and you know what would make me happy? You know what would make me significant? Having the newer car, the bigger house, the fancier clothes, fill in the blank with whatever material possession we can think of. That is what's going to fill that void, that need of life. That is what the love of money and how it begins to take root in our hearts. Look at the words that are used of of what's the destination of a person who is just tied up with this love of money, the desire to seek the satis- or to, to satisfy the needs of life through, through possessions. Where, where does that end up? The words that are used in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 are significant, that it is a temptation, a trap. It leads to foolish and harmful desires. It is plunging people to ruin and destruction. They are pierced with many griefs. And worst of all, and most significant and staggering, it says people are wandering away from the faith. That's pretty serious. Again, we need to be very aware of how this begins to take root and, and just see how soft and subtle that call can be. I got an email this week from my internet provider telling me that if I would just double my investment in them, if I would pay twice as much as I'm paying now, they will double my internet speed and life is good. All I have to do is use my material possessions to get more of what I think I need and it would make me a better person. Now, what got me the most or what really caught my attention about this particular ad was, the, was an email and the very first thing it said in the subject line, so this is the only thing I see when it first comes up, it says this, start flexing on the neighbors. My neighbor is here this morning. I got bad news for you, Lawrence. What's up? Second place on North Skiles Court. Because I got fast internet. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. But again, what is the message there? The message there is that you are most significant. That what matters is your significant. And you need to flex on the neighbors even with your internet speed. Come on. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. But it is so subtle and so subversive that that thought begins to fester and grow and put roots into our heart and then it becomes out of control and bigger bigger and how I relate to the world around me is 
what's most significant for me. That's how I relate to the world around me with my, my resources. So what do we do? Well, as the gospel begins to intersect and impact that thought that, that <clears throat> if I think I own all I possess, <clears throat> I'm focused on my own significance. When the gospel interacts with that, I discover and become transformed that when my significance is rooted in Christ, I am complete. What a marvelous truth that this is. You need to hear this over and over and over again. When our significance is rooted in Christ, you are complete. You don't need faster internet. You don't need the shinier car to be any more significant, etc. The, the examples go, go on and on. Colossians 2, 8 and 10. It says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler in authority. There is nothing more significant than that. Nothing. Let go of the desire for fast internet speed. Let go of this lie that what I have and what I possess somehow relates to my significance. It's just not true. So how do we move forward? Continuing in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, gives us instructions. Instruct those who are rich in the present age, which is every single one of us in this room, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. Storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. How do we do that? How do we put that into practice? How do we not be arrogant? How do we not set our hope on uncertain, the uncertainty of wealth, but, but rather focus and hold on to what is truly life? I like to use this thought and this reference point for my own life and for you as well, is that we have a choice with everything. We can either celebrate it or coronate it in our life. Celebration and coronation. Celebrate, we enjoy the things that God has provided. If we coronate, we have put a crown on it and put it on the throne of our heart and said, this is the most important thing in my life. How do we know if I've, how can I diagnose coronation in my heart? Well, this thought that Everything that I have or, or, or what I view, it's good to do an inventory of everything that we have in our life and say, if those things were gone, threatened, taken away, whatever, what happens to my satisfaction, significance, and security? Does it crash and burn? Am I thinking, oh my goodness, the world is over. If that's the case, I think we have begun to coronate something in our heart. To celebrate it, what does it look like to celebrate we do this with wide open hands. We're able to say, God, all I have is yours and you have given me so much. Thank you for that. And we can enjoy those things. We can enjoy going to a Royals game. We can enjoy tailgating at a Chiefs game. We can enjoy all of the things around us when our heart is focused on God. You are a marvelous provider. All I have is yours. As we enjoy all of those things, there could be times to respond as well when God says, you have an opportunity with all that I have given you to give to an overseas ministry or a ministry right here in Kansas City so that the kingdom of God can increase. All of that is to magnify and glorify God, to make his name great, not our own. Transformation point number three is that when I think I own all I possess, I'm focused on my own security. And a sure roadblock to letting God have access, to letting God reign over and transform the relationship possess is an insecure belief that I have every rational reason not to. 
I have every rational reason not to. If I just look at the facts, I have a, you know, a son who's a junior this year, and so I got to start thinking about college and saving for that, and you know, he needs a car to drive and blah, 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 and then my daughter's not too far behind, and, and then I've got you know, grand retirement plans in you know, 2098 <laughs> something or, or whatever. Um, we can come up with all of these excuses and use them as quote-unquote rational reasons for why I can't honor God with what he has given me, with why I can't with open hands say, God, all I have is yours. It's a blessing from you. What would the the widow have used as a reason? This poor widow in Luke 21 walked into the temple, dropped in all she had, walked out. There was no, and what's interesting about this is Jesus observes this and, and uses this as a teaching point to those there, but he doesn't stop the widow. He doesn't say, hey, 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 he doesn't commend her. He doesn't, you know, give her a million bucks because she gave all she had. Because she had joy in her heart of saying, God, all I have is yours. And it might be a quarter of a cent, but I'm giving 100% of it to you. I'm giving all of it to you for what you have given me. Because of who you are, I am giving it all back. You have access to it, God. We've certainly all felt the pressure of pursuit to accumulate, to establish our own kingdom, thinking that's what keeps us safe. And to challenge this thought around possessions as our, as our security, I don't think we need to search very long and we don't need to push very hard to see how that's impacting our hearts. Anybody been uh, following the stock market since January? How's that going? Wonderful, yeah. We got the sarcasm <laughs> No, it's, you know, you look at the stock market and only that and say, whew, ouch. We've certainly all felt the impact and staying and hear it, hear it talked about nonstop, nonstop the, the rising impact and cost of inflation. Every time we go to the gas pump, we're like, whew, ouch. Someone just held me upside down and stole my lunch money is what it, what it feels like. The current numbers on debt in this country are staggering as well, all adding to this pressure, this feeling of, Finances, we are most insecure in this area. And so therefore, I need to hold tighter and tighter and tighter because it's up to me. I'm in control. If that's where you're at this morning, if we've been, as we've been pushing on these, these areas of life and it's been uncomfortable and, and made you think, man, whew, I am all sorts of tied up and I feel like I am upside down. I feel like my heart, it's in my treasure and I don't know what to do with it. I don't know a way out. I've got debt. I've got insecurity. I've got feelings of insignificance and I'm very dissatisfied. I want to say this first and foremost is that when and as the gospel in, intersects with what we possess and hold on to as our security and transforms that, we find that when my security is rooted in Christ, I am sealed by his Holy Spirit. Sealed is a big word. Another important word, just as big as complete. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are his. It's like his stamp on us. John 10.28 tells us that nothing, no one can wrestle us, can snatch us away from being in God's hand. We are His. And so if you've been feeling that insecurity, that unsettledness, that dissatisfaction with all of these things, and these are the reasons what has, has really clouded my thinking of how I relate to my resources and how I relate to God and, and what that looks like, take a breath. Take a breath this morning and know that you are not what you do or do not own. That God has put you together with a purpose, with a relationship. He has gifted you with, with many, many things and things might be upside down and God is not using this message to point these things out or as these things come up in your own heart and mind, those things aren't coming up so that God can say, see, here is where you are a failure. Here is where you have botched it. Ugh. I can't believe you. It's exactly the opposite. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit works to bring these things up so he can lead us and transform us through it and bring us to something better. 
And that is a fuller relationship with him. So take a breath. Know that these things are coming up in your heart not as condemnation, but as encouragement of transformation. The second thing is that we, as your church family, we're here to help you. Again, this isn't a, we in no way, shape, or form have any sort of pegboard in the back where we, you know, rate people of, you know, who's ahead and who's below. Who's got the good internet speed? Who's not flexing on their neighbors? Not in any way, shape, or form. We're here to help you with that. Part of discipleship is walking together through life, all aspects of it. The good, the things that we celebrate together. The scary, the things that we're unsure of. The painful, the things that hurt. So we're here to help you in that and reach out to us and we can connect you with people who have walked these exact roads before and seen God work and bring peace, satisfaction, significance, and security in him through all of these things. And we would love to see you walk in that as well. This morning, moving forward, when we are focused on our abundance, when I'm focused on my abundance, I will always lack. And my focus is, is coming from that perspective. But when I'm aware of my poverty, I see that Jesus gave all. We have this wonderful blessing to celebrate and worship together with communion this morning and partake in that together. Here, again, in the temple, Jesus had been there all week. He sees this interaction and has this inter- or sees, sees the widow and people giving offerings and uses this teaching point for the people, uh, speaking directly to their hearts. He then leaves the temple very shortly after this event took place and gave everything. He goes from here to the upper room with his disciples. He shares the Last Supper with them and explains the significance of of communion to them. We begin to see, again, another clear picture of how the gospel changes everything. The message of the gospel is this. That in the garden, Adam and Eve were enticed by the lie when Satan said, you are not satisfied, you are not significant, nor nearly secure enough. You need something else. This apple, this forbidden fruit, This over here, outside of what God has planned and provided for you, this is what's better. For thousands of years, you and I are no exclusion, are not excluded, we're we're not immune to this. Humans have been chasing and choosing that quote-unquote something else. I long to be satisfied and have chosen what I think makes me feel good. I've overbooked my schedule and overjammed activity after activity, appointment after appointment with believing the false lie that there is a, some sort of reward at the end of it, that this will make me happy. If I just do one more thing, that's going to bring me satisfaction at the cost of other human relationships. It, pursuit to be satisfied, I have chosen illicit relationships in a selfish attempt to relate and to be known in some cases. I long to be significant and have chosen through great effort and perilous pursuits to create an elaborate image of what I want you to see. I'm willing to sacrifice, again, people, relationships, and resources so that I can be viewed as important in someone else's eyes. All of that leaves and brings me to a place where I long to be secure when I am dissatisfied and feeling insignificant and pursuing all of these things, it, it creates within me this position of leaving myself, leaving myself vulnerable to an overwhelming fear of not being enough. I am not secure. Choosing something other than God is sin and breaks our relationship with God. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. Now broken by sin, we're in sin and totally incapable of restoring this relationship. We are in extreme poverty. But only when I am aware of my poverty am I aware of my dependence. 
I'm unable to save myself. The chances are not slim. They are absolute zero. Yet here is the moment of hallelujah. That Jesus left the temple and gave everything to secure our reconciliation. This is our salvation. I'm going to invite those that are distributing communion to come and get the elements. And as we pass those out, to continue to think about this thought that Christ gave everything to to win my freedom, to, to reconcile me back to himself. I want us to think about this position that we're in. So often we only view and interact with God through our abundance. And again, as we're focused on our, only on our abundance, I will always lack. But aware of my poverty, I recognize Jesus gave all and I am in need of him. So I recognize that, that I am in need of him. How can I do anything else but to say, God, all I have is yours. Because of who you are, because of what you have done for me, something I could never do on my own or by myself. In turn, whether it's big or small, all that I have is yours. It doesn't matter if if my all looks different than someone else's all. If I've got 20 bucks and someone else has 2 million bucks, it doesn't matter. The response of my heart is the same. God, you are worthy of of everything that I have, of all that I am, because it is all from you. My relationship with my resources tells the story about my relationship with God. And let that be a story of desperate dependence and glorious worship, celebrating all he is and all he's done for us. While he was in the upper room, Jesus took bread and he shared it with his disciples and said, this bread represents my body, which I will sacrifice for you. He took the cup and passed the cup among them, said, this cup represents my blood, which will be shed for you. It is this sacrificing of his body, the shedding of his blood, Jesus dying on the cross, but yet rising in victory three days later is what brings us salvation. We do this in remembrance of him as believers in him this morning. It's not the process or the physical act of taking these elements that saves us, but remembering who did save us. So let's do so in worship and remembrance of who he is. Let's partake together. God, we praise you this morning for who you are. God, we praise you that you work in our hearts, you transform us, you leave nothing the same. And as you do, I recognize that I am in extreme poverty, but yet not hopeless at all. Thank you for your glorious gift of salvation that you gave everything for us to pay the penalty for sin, to reconcile us back to yourself so that we may live victoriously. God, the response of my heart is to say, all I am, all I have is yours. May it be a pleasing offering to you. In your name we pray, amen.